Well, are you still biking? Like, I mean, now it's too cold. Except for- it's never too cold to bike. I, I used to. Um, when I was in New York, I would bike commute in New York. I love the coldest days. It was like if it's 15 degrees out. You ever bike in the cold? Even Drew, yeah. Even you Drew, Drew, Sirius, up. Drew Sirius said he has a he has a cutoff. I don't forget what he said it was. 30 degrees. No, it feels 20. good. As long as you're, it's terrible if you're not, if you miss this spot, right? If you have an open year or something, it's awful. But if you're bundled up good. It just must good, burn. No, but if you're bundled up good, it doesn't, it would feel so good. Greetings, friends and comrades. Welcome again to the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're dug in behind enemy lines. We're doing espionage every day to undermine the Delaware way. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> before I introduce this evening's uh, esteemed guest, uh, I wanted to make two shout-outs. Uh, one is to Two Stones Brewery. They came through again. Delco Lager. Uh, it's my favorite. Uh, they call it an all-weather beer. It's a beer for all seasons. Uh, if you're going to drink beer... Uh, get beer that's brewed near here. Uh, I should start getting paid for this. Greg, talk to somebody. Uh, also, I want to uh, throw some love to a comrade in D.C., uh, a Jess-supporting uh, synth-pop DJ, 2D Cat. We just received some original music uh, made for the primary season, and uh, Carl and I will be debuting it in some episode soon. Uh, but we wanted to give her, give him the shout-outs. Thank you, 2D Cat. So my guest tonight is uh, Newcastle County Executive, Wilmington, Delaware native, and a fellow alum of uh, uh, with super producer Emeritus Margaret of Brown University. You know, yeah, um, Matt Meyer. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks, thanks. I uh, love that you. I'm, I think now that you came straight from work in, in a suit and your lapel pin, I think we're going to start uh, having a dress code here. Straight yeah. from work. This is my lunch break. Uh, okay, here we, here we go. Here we go. You work twenty four hours a day, don't you? Twenty two. I need a two hour break to eat. Fair enough. Um, so you, I, I don't want to like belabor your CV. Um, one because I think a lot of people have an idea or they can look it up, but also I don't want you to brag too much, and it's, it's pretty deep. So I don't want you sitting here bragging about all the things you've done. But I do want to find out now that you told me you were the paper boy in this uh, neighborhood. Um, like where where you grew up, uh, what it was like, what your parents did, sort of how you know how was how did that go? Yeah, I grew up uh, two two and a half blocks from what I now know to be the bunker. Nice, uh, right near Highland School. Uh, we, uh, you know, uh, went to Brandywine School District schools, which doesn't make sense in this neighborhood. But we moved from North Wilmington, uh, and then actually it was a it was a school that, believe it or not, was desegregated. The Brandywine School Districts were desegregated when I was a kid in the seventies by court order, and so I went from sort of an all white suburban school to suddenly a, an integrated school in the city of Wilmington where I was bussed in. I was there a couple of years and then ultimately I ended up at Friends. Went to, I went to high school at Friends and then went away to, uh, went away to college. What school did you go to and is it still around? To? When you came into the city? Harlan. Harlan okay. Elementary. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, it's still around. I, I was there, uh, I think I was their graduation speaker. I spoke at something. I think I was one of their graduation speakers a year and a half ago. So it was, nice. it's kind of cool. One of our famous graduates to, Yeah, back. like uh, to, to be a graduation speaker to the fifth graders. You young, young Maddie did good. Yeah, they said, hey, why don't you come be the graduation speaker? Just keep it to 45 seconds or less. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. You're like, oh, okay. this is actually great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. Right. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about 
some of your background before you ran, because I'm I'm interested in the overseas work you've done, both with the State Department and I guess you know for yourself, sort of in setup. I don't know if they sort of ran together, um, but tell uh, remind me of of where you went, uh, what you did, and for whom, um, sort of government and non governmental work. I, I was in. In high school and college, I spent a lot of time doing what I now understand from Brian Stevenson to be getting proximate to, to the problems I wanted to solve. And for me, in high school and college, a lot of that was about class, a bit about race, but more about class and about homelessness. I've always felt it was ridiculous that in this day and age, with the technologies we have, with the incredible problems, unsolved, like you think 100 years ago, the problems that couldn't be solved, just like a, a car 200 years ago. Imagine a car. A car was like this imaginary thing that we couldn't have dreamed of. The human mind and the human spirit was able to solve that problem and create something called a car, an automobile, so that everybody has one. But yet we can't figure out how to make sure everybody has a decent shelter. Everybody has you know three decent meals, nutritious meals every day here in America. And so that's something that throughout high school and college uh, and when I came out of college, I was determined to address. Uh, it, it, in the course of doing that work, it, uh, I was turned on to going to Africa, and I ended up spending a semester in college in Kenya, in East Africa, and working in a poor neighborhood in Nairobi. Uh, I ended up starting a, a business there with some young adults who lived in the in the shantytown neighborhood where I lived. We started a sandal making company that was one of the first companies online in Africa, and so uh, I did that for a year. And I came back, ended up uh, in, in law school, um, actually taught for four years uh, in high need schools, first through Teach for America. And then uh, ultimately, I hit a point in my legal career where uh, friends of friends were going, and a few friends were going to Iraq, Afghanistan to serve in the war. I, I thought the Iraq war in particular was not a smart war. I don't know if there is such thing as a smart war, but I thought it, it, it was... Not a smart thing, but I felt like if we're going to go to war, we all should go to war. I ultimately signed up to be a diplomat, and I embedded uh, with the U.S. Army in a place called Mosul, Iraq, in northern Iraq, and yeah, spent Kurds, a year there some Kurds. in 2010. It's right. Uh, it was right along isn't it right the, on the fault the, line. The fault, yeah, yeah, anything north, anything north of there is like to, is like uh, Kurdistan. Yeah, basically. you know the, where I was. There were two diplomatic posts. There was an American diplomatic post. We were on a military base, and about two blocks from us, there was a Turkish diplomatic post. We weren't far from the Turks. And the big question where we were was who should be in control of this city of Mosul? Is it the Kurds? Is it the Sunni Arabs? Is it the Shia Arabs? And so it occurred to me to go and ask the Turkish consul general who was there. He was the other unbiased party there, the Turks. And to ask him one night, at you know, we were having dinner and I said, who do you think, you know, should control this area? Is it the Sunni Arabs, the Shia Arabs, or the Kurds? And he said, oh, None of them. Definitely the Turks. I, I, as soon as you started telling this, as soon as you started telling this story, I knew how it was going to end because I, I do follow Turkish politics, and I have a. It's so funny. I'll show you a photo later. But I went to a friend's house, a very old friend of mine. I've known him over twenty years. But he's a he's a he's a Turk, and he came here as an adult. Um, but he's still uh, he's a patriotic sort of leftist Turk. Uh, but you know it's serious because in his living room, there's not one but two portraits of Ataturk. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Just, he's One's not enough. Very serious. You have to have two. Yeah. And he was like, you know that big banner I have still downstairs? I was like, I know. I believe you. I believe you. I don't, I don't need to see it. Um, well, let's bring it back to the first thing that you mentioned because I'm, I'm interested in that, the housing thing. Um, 
the U.S. Uh, economy, or whatever you want to call it, did create the automobile. And the U.S. government created the, the infrastructure upon which it drove. And the automobile was a commodity uh, that made a lot of people a lot of money. Uh, and we built our whole sort of infrastructure around it. Housing is also a commodity. And it's a little bit different because you can't move it around. And it's not really supposed to de depreciate. Um, but it's a commodity. And I wonder if that fact has any bearing upon the fact that we can't house everyone. And I wonder what your feeling on it is since it's, you, know, you, you brought up that that was a, an important issue to you. So. You mean that it's a, a commodity and we live in a capitalist country. And so by definition, there will be haves and have nots. Yeah, and I'm not. Yeah, so let's talk about the have-nots. In this case, the have-nots don't have a house. They're they're in the out of doors. They're in tents. They're on the sidewalk. They're in shelters. Perhaps in their car if they're lucky. So, those are the have-nots in this situation. This is a, uh, an issue that concerns you. Um, how do we address it in a system where there's going to be have-nots? Can do we accept that there's people that have not have a home? Yeah, I, I I certainly don't think we should. I you know I read a quote. So when I was in high school, uh, I believed strongly that homelessness was an economic problem, and so the only way to dramatically decrease or eliminate the problem of homelessness was with with an economic solution. Something about our economy, something about the economy of housing, the the jobs economy, uh, the wage economy. In working with homeless, I learned that it was m much more complicated than that. There was a quote I put on my wall in high school that said something like, people say that homelessness is about abuse. People say that homelessness is about drug use. People say that homelessness is about joblessness. People say it's about low wages. They say it's about a whole litany of things. But in working with the homeless, you learn that every person is an individual puzzle. And that's actually true with people who aren't homeless. They all have the things that are great about them and the things that they really struggle with. And there are some commonalities across homeless people. There are some policies that you can put in place to reduce homelessness. But I really believe strongly in things like case management, that very often in homeless populations, you find tremendous amount of mental illness. There are a lot of people who are homeless who are not mental, mentally ill. But if you ignore mental illness, you will never be able to truly address the homelessness problem. You have problems, very, very serious problems of, of substance use disorder. Is, does everybody who's homeless have a substance use disorder? No. If you ignore it, uh, you're never going to address it. And so on, joblessness, low wages, uh, family abuse issues, domestic abuse issues, sexism, racism, that, that all works in. And so I think the way that we're effective, you know, we claim to in Delaware have eliminated veteran homelessness. And largely we have, it's a hard thing to say you've eliminated because if you find one veteran homeless person, that means we actually didn't eliminate it. But the way they really eliminated it or came close to eliminating it in the state of Delaware and a number of states around the country is through case management by looking at each individual who's encountering that problem 
as a unique puzzle and how do we work with that person to get them the supports they need so that they have a safe shelter. I don't necessarily house. disagree with you. We had, um, as part of the Erica Gutierrez, uh, Erica actually produced a show around the holidays for us and brought in a bunch of activists and organizers and stuff. It was great. I know it's a mutual friend of ours. Um, there was a guy, J.C. Livingston. You familiar with this guy? He, he actually, he was working as a case manager at one of the spots in Wilmington and then wound up opening, starting his own um, nonprofit organization uh, called the Homes for Humanity, I think. I'll, we'll put it, we'll link it again in the show notes because I don't remember exactly what it is. But his, he started bringing people into his home and it was difficult because, you know, people are on the streets, there's a, there's a trust thing and they don't know what's happening. And he would bring people into and learn their stories, and he would say, and then he wound up being able to sort of place people or, or put them back in touch with their families. A lot of different um, services they're able to give them now. And he started as a case manager, and, 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 I, and I don't necessarily disagree that those kind of services are starting to understand the reasons these things are happening. It's going to be important. But you know what, I mean, what does that mean materially? What do we do materially to uh, to implement the surge of case management needed, and what homes do we put those folks in when we do it? So there are a few things. Uh, the first is anyone in housing today, real estate agents, uh, you know, people at Delaware State Housing Authority, people in our housing office at the county, will tell you that there is a huge shortage of affordable housing. Uh, in our county, in our state, and I think in many parts of our country. Housing prices have risen. Wages, uh, certainly among lower income earners, have not risen at the, at the same level as the rest of the country. And so as a result, you have a lot of people who can't afford even to rent a, a house. So the first thing is, the way you deal with that from an economic perspective is you increase supply. Uh, so there needs to be a greater supply of, of homes. The number I was given this morning, I got a briefing on it. I think of the Section 8 vouchers that we give out in Newcastle County, Section 8 is a federal program. You have to be low-income qualified to get it. There's a long waiting list, hundreds and hundreds of people. And then when your number comes up, you're given a voucher that enables you to basically use that money to go and get a decent house. I believe it's 48% of the Section 8 voucher holders who were given vouchers in the last round where we opened it up, which I think was last year, 48% of them, their vouchers expired without using them, which makes no sense. Here are people who have been waiting for years, lower-income people, to get vouchers. They get vouchers, which means the federal government is giving them money to go and find housing, and then I think they have 12 months or 18 months, some period to get housing. 48% of them expired. Well, let me ask you this: What what happened was there's not houses there, right? Right? Uh, yeah, there's no there's, there's no, no affordable there's no, no affordable right. housing, no affordable housing. right? Yeah, I mean, I've talked. We we had a big housing episode, and we've talked about sort of suburban demographics and stuff. So we, we, we we've covered a little bit of it, but not as much as we probably should. I'm glad we're talking about it. I would I would ask you, and you may know the answer to this. You're actually you, you may you may know in the county. I don't know if you would know exactly in the city versus the county, but you might know the whole thing. Um, how many hotels have been built in the last three years? How many hotels have been built in the last three years in the county? I think most of them have been built in municipalities in Wilmington. Okay, and, and Newark. Uh, yeah, I would guess in the neighborhood of five, five, four, five, five, four, yeah. four or five hotels. How many? Middletown uh, built one as well. Yeah, yeah and how, many, how, how much new housing stock has been built in Middletown and at what, at what price point? 
Uh, that I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, you see what I'm driving. I don't get what you're saying. Yeah, there's a lot more hotels. Like so, yeah. I mean, we can we can keep unwinding this, but the 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 system is incented for people. I mean, I, I mean, you wouldn't know this, but you know, we just there was a couple new buildings just put downtown by by BPG. There's a new luxury building being put on 200 Pennsylvania Avenue down here by a firm from Pennsylvania, I think. Um, so it's not for the lack of resources. Right. So how do we get affordable housing built when other housing is being built at pace? Whether it be, and, and again, I use hotels just as an example, it kind of doesn't fit that quite right, but you, you see what I'm getting at. So what what materially can we do to incent the building of you know, 200 units or 400 units like the flats is of affordable housing before we build another hotel or another um, suburban sort of uh, development. So what do we do? So, well, first of all, I mean, there, there is a shortage of uh, affordable housing. There's also a shortage of, I guess, what you call unaffordable housing. On, on higher income levels in this area, there's a shortage there as well. So it's not to say one without the other. There are a few things. Uh, we can do. First of all, we're making more progress on vacant housing than uh, certainly any other jurisdiction in the region. We've increased the supply of affordable homes that were previously vacant delinquent houses, a source of blight in our communities, by over 400 just since I came into office three years ago. Um, the, the, we just went after certain uh, delinquent property owners in vacant houses that were a problem for our police, our paramedics, uh, and we've we've managed to turn those over. Very often, uh, selling them into new, you know, forcing the owner to pay up or sell them into new hands. So they go to share of sale and they, and they would sell them. So that's one answer. Another answer is that there is there are programs that the amount of money it requires the county does not have and the state doesn't really have it's primarily funded we have a 20 million dollar uh housing program at the county it's entirely funded by the federal government or nearly entirely funded by the federal government a little bit of additional assistance from the state and a little bit of additional assistance from the county the, the programs like low-income uh housing tax credits are really effective tools but there's not enough. There's not enough supply of those financial resources to get out there. So that's one solution. Another, to be quite honest, is, I mean, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a real problem with redlining, right? Restrictive deed covenant saying, we don't want these people in our neighborhood. And it was explicit. I think there's, we would all agree that there's some of that today implicitly. It doesn't say you're not allowed to say legally, we don't want these people in your deeds. Um, but you look at some of the nimbyism out there. If you go to some of the community meetings I go to out in the suburbs, there's some of that attitude that these are the people we don't want in our neighborhood. So it helps for us to, to break down those attitudes. If you go to a lot of neighborhoods across our county, across our state and say, we're going to put up, you know, 100 affordable housing units. There are uh, certainly not every community. I would like to think not most communities, but there certainly are communities w which will absolutely not want those I in their mean, neighborhood. I think it would probably be most, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I can't not uh, agree with you because that, that's true. I, I, you know, I follow that stuff all the time, and and it, you know, it happens. Whether it's you know other kinds of services like mental health services or. Uh, medical, like drug treatment services, addiction services uh, for people, 
or it's affordable housing. Yeah. They don't want any of it anywhere. Well, and, and, I, and I guess not, it, that's not totally. We just did a big affordable housing project on Ogletown Road, uh, Felician Sisters. You may three years ago there was a big movement to get the county to buy a big piece of land to turn it into a park yeah. out outside Newark. The interesting thing is that the project had two components. One component was market rate housing, and the other component was affordable housing. The, the, the church wanted to turn an orphanage into a, a basically affordable housing and help subsidize it with market rate lots. The affordable housing part was not controversial at all to the credit of the neighbors there. I, don't, I didn't hear a single person of the hundreds of people that contacted us say, don't build affordable housing. They, to our surprise, didn't want the market rate housing built. They wanted a park instead of the market rate housing. Is this uh, Medina's district? Uh, it is no, it's Ed Osinski's district. Okay, so Representative Osinski, but it's not far. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was, that's why I was trying to place it because yeah. I, I know where you're talking about, and I'm trying to place it in my in my mind. Well, let's stay on like, the housing topic a little bit, and uh, refer to. I'll refer all listeners to um, the show uh, we did with uh, with Lex Wilson and uh, Jeannie Kwan on uh, the the tax reassessment. You mentioned earlier about winners and losers. So there's, we're always going to, it's always going to shake out, right? So in this case, it seems to me that because legally to change this process is more or less neutral from a monetary standpoint, it's a, it's not, it's a, it's a recalibration. It's not a source of revenue. Would you agree with that? That's sort of, I mean, more, it's more or less revenue neutral. State law allows the counties to reassess and increase their tax revenue by up to 15%. Okay. Um, but the idea of it is yes. Generally. Revenue. Okay. You're not, if you, so you, you want to raise revenue, you increase the tax rates. If you want to rebalance who pays what, you reassess. So in principle, so, so the right. reassessment could bring some more revenue, but it's not. So it's not revenue neutral, but that's not the, the point of it. That's right. I think I read somewhere you 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 characterized it as a as an issue of fairness. Listen, was I, you, I mean, was it, to was be clear, right? so that w- that would be accurate. The last time Kent County reassessed was 1987. That means that in Kent County, with the exception of Dover, but in Kent County, uh, your property taxes, pro- people, the properties in Kent County. Their property taxes are based on the value of their property in 1987. In Newcastle County, it's based on the property value in 1983. And in Sussex County, it's based on the value in 1974. Uh, and so I would contend that, first of all, is it unfair and is it wrong? Yes, it's unfair. It's wrong. It's like, it's not fair if if I said, you know, if, if we said we're going to charge you income tax based on what you made in 1983. Uh, would people be happy? Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of people would probably be pretty happy. Um, but is it good for governance? Is it good for society? Probably not. Um, but as you said, what it does is it is it, and a lot of people don't understand this. I appreciate that you do. It doesn't actually reduce the amount of money in our government. What it does is it it changes who pays what. Yes. And and. I, I guess, uh, and you you tell me if you disagree with this characterization. Like I said we had uh, we had Lex and Jeannie in here to give us the full bit of reporting that they did. They did like four stories on it, I think. Generally speaking, the folks who will wind up paying 
more are affluent. Their homes are, are worth much more because they've actually seen appreciation over the 30 years, whatever it is, 35 years. Um, they're professional managerial class folks. And the people who will get a break are 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 working class. Um, they're generally either in, in in working class neighborhoods. I mean, the numbers are there. So we have the. So my, I guess my my point is, if it's if it's unfair, if it's inherently unfair, it's unfair because the folks who really have an asset aren't paying enough. And the folks who maybe have a decent home or, or something are overpaying uh, for what they have. So if that's just the case, what is the rationale for not fixing it like tomorrow morning? Yeah, it, it, the answer is because that's a that's a good story um, and it's easy to get your arms around, but it's really not that clear. It's, it's uh, m- much more... Uh, confusing, I guess is one word than that, or or just not clear what would happen. If you look at jurisdictions around the country, whether it's Mecklenburg County uh, in North Carolina, Allegheny County uh, in and around Pittsburgh, uh, Suffolk County in Long Island, they've all had serious struggles after decades of not having reassessment, trying to reassess. And part of the problem is the, the perceived winners and losers at the beginning of the process often are not the winners and losers at the end of the process. For example, there's a lot of talk, right, that if you have some huge house in Hokessin, your house has appreciated a lot more than someone who's got a house on the east side of Wilmington, right? So it's likely, and this is pro- I don't know if it's true. Uh, there are a lot of people that claim to know it's true. I don't really believe them. I don't think we're sure. But we believe that many people, for example, in Hokessin, their uh, tax assessed value will go go up much more than the tax assessed value in certain areas of Wilmington. You also have to think, where was our economy in 1983? In 1983 in Newcastle County, GM, Chrysler, Avon, uh, Claymont Steel, uh, were all vibrant companies here. None of them exist in Newcastle County a- anymore. Uh, DuPont had you know 34,000 employees. Now they have less than 5,000. They had a much bigger presence. That it was really there was a lot more manufacturing going on. They had a huge Edgemore plant. So what's the what's the impact so, of that? So the impact of that is that th- I think there's a good again I don't know, but there's a good chance that the percentage of the tax base taken up by large corporate interests, the actual corporations, was a much higher percentage then. So there's a chance that an unintended consequence of reassessment will be the corporate burden of, of taxation decreases, of property taxation decreases dramatically. So suddenly uh, it, it falls on you and me on the middle class to fund more of our schools, our police, our libraries than it does these large corporations. So we don't so, know. All, all I'm saying is we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of... And for example, the first time I talked to Mayor Perzicki about that, about reassessment shortly after we came into office, he discouraged us from doing it. And the reason was because he was concerned in ish, in areas like Wawaset Park and uh, the Highlands, the wealthier parts. Oh, uh, we know. I mean, we're we're well aware. I of mean, what's outside going on the bunker. Uh, yes, outside the bunker. Uh, the yeah, wealthier. Out, out in the world. Out in the world. Out in the world. Right when when you I don't know if you've ever been outside the bunker, but when you get outside the we, bunker, uh, once a month I have to do reconnaissance. 
see what the other side's doing. Exactly. Um, w- those areas, there's a belief that their uh, ta- taxes has values will raise quite a bit. And so their, the, the amount of money they'll pay in taxes will increase dramatically. If it increases dramatically, it's very tempting if you're in Wasset Park to move a quarter mile away to Westover Hills, outside the city, you stop paying city taxes. And he was afraid they would have a dramatic negative impact. So why don't you guys come together and do it all together? So why don't you reassess the house in Wawasa Park and the house in Westover Hills? You got and, tw- and here's what we're talking you got, about. You, you got we're $25 ta- million? Dollars? We're, we're, here's, I, hold on. Let me, ta- let me explain why to do it first. Okay. Because I'm, because I'm not the disagreeing person with sell- The person selling a million-dollar home in Wawasa Park to move to a million-dollar home in Westover Hills. I have to be totally honest with you. That particular person's interest isn't at the top of my list. Understood. Now, no, but he, here's the problem. I, I don't here's know what who's, is. who's uh, Here's what is, and here's why I think Mayor Persicki told me this. Because if you have a, a sort of an exodus of Wawasset Park, Highlands, the, or, you know, Rockford, those neighborhoods, what's the consequence for the city? What happens to the city's tax base? What happens to the wage taxes? That the city's earning. If suddenly there are people fleeing the city, it's it's bad for those communities that I think you and I and Carl really care. I, I, I have I have to. Here's my only issue with this whole line of argument: <laughs> is maybe the first time I ever confronted John Carney to his face was about something similar. It was about just raising fees on LLCs, I think, or something like that. And his argument was identical to that. If you do that, people will run away. Now, in this case, um, they're going, you know, just a couple neighborhoods over. Uh, in his case, I guess they're going to the Cayman Islands or, I don't know, the Nakotas or, or Panama or somewhere, the Seychelles. But I, I, I just feel like this idea of being held hostage by the, the most affluent and wealthy people in our neighborhoods is going to get us all killed. And that's my that's where I'm coming Understood. from. And I don't, and, Carl, and the 25 million dollars I I I I understand it costs money. And I guess I I would say, you know, if we can't you know, we talked about housing before and making sure that not only there's more housing stock, that the process is better and that we can convince people to do this sort of around them. I get all that. But if we can't find 25 million dollars to just make the tax assessment like logical i mean it's like basically saying we're doomed i mean let's let's be honest 25 million dollars i mean you know chase is headquartered here capital one's headquartered here they i mean the 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 amount of money that must go through these these lawyers downtown for llc's it's probably it's unimaginable to most people you couldn't even imagine that much money in a single day the idea we can't find 25 million dollars to make sure people are paying based on what they own and, and it's worth. I don't know, man. It's it's very disheartening. Uh, Do you know what no, I mean? It, it, I, I think it's an issue. of I, I largely agree with you. It's a basic issue of fairness, right? We can talk about who the winners and losers are. It, 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 that's almost secondary. I think the reason to do it is it's the fair thing to do. If we're charging you a tax assessment on your house, it should be based on the value of your house. Yeah. And not I think, based on some sort of imaginary value from 35 co- years ago. Correct. And I think the idea of winners and losers puts in stark relief one of the reasons that it's not getting the, done uh, 
I don't know if that's – I think one reason – you may be right. I think it's a, it's a perception of winners and losers. I'm just afraid when you look at other jurisdictions, there are going to be uh, people who we think are losers who end up winners and people who we think will be winners who end up losers. I'm sure that will happen. And, and to, I'm the, sure that will the happen. The reason to do I, it is it's just the right thing to do. But what needs to happen is that we have a state law that's fundamentally broken. I really don't want – and I've said this time and again – I do not want to be – the, the the county government that reassesses uh, for the first time in whatever it's been, 30, 37 years, and uh, the only county government that does it for the next 37 years, right? I We need to fix a system. A state law that says do this whenever you want is not functioning. Maryland has reassessments every three years. It's going to be painful to go through the process to initially adjust there are things we can do to make sure that no individual family or no no neighborhood has a tremendous, ridiculous burden. We don't want someone who bought a house thinking they're going to pay $1,000 a year in property taxes suddenly have to pay $7,000 a year. There are things we can do to address that. I'm eager to take it on, but I'm only going to take it on if we can say, hey, wait a minute, let's actually fully fix the system so that we're not just spending $25 million to fix this thing or to, to reassess once, but we're doing it to actually put in place a system so that every few years we're going to update these reassessments and we'll never have this problem again. I guess the the cynical person would say it's kicking the can down the road because we're going to get a uh, – when are we due? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a decision due in Chancery Court soon, right? On yeah, the, the, legality. the oral arguments were, were last week. He's writing the decision now. Let me, let me say something about this. The basis of that decision, the basis, I'm sorry, of that litigation, right, is, is what? It's not really there. I forget the paragraph 71 through 74 of the complaint, or maybe 171 through 174, cover reassessment. Every other paragraph in that complaint is about one other thing. It's about the inequity in our schools reassessing one time, right? The kind of reassessment that a lot of people are talking about, just go, let's just do it, right? That will not really address the inequity in schools that we want to address. The reason is the school funding formula is based on assumption of regular reassessment. So we have accurate assessed values of home. If you do that one time, it doesn't get us regular updates on what the assessed value is. So we really need a new process, which I'm happy to put in place at the county, but it doesn't really make sense. It needs to happen at the state level so that the state funding formula can work for schools. I will say this, that I would love to ask these questions to Mayor Przicki, but you know, some people have, you know, some people get, get it and some people don't. So I appreciate you coming. No problem. Have you invited him? I have. Him. I have actually, uh, but in the, the situation when I invited him was probably not, uh, probably not the best. <laughs> did you use foul language? Maybe I did, you should do actually, it without foul language. I, actually, I did do it without foul language. Yeah. I did do it without foul language, but it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it was out in the street. So you know, I think you might have invited me with foul language, but it was complimentary foul language. So yeah, I, I mean, I think people understand that my. People are like, you curse too much. And I'm like, it's just the way that I talk. Just fucking relax. Jesus Christ. Um, I'm trying to decide uh, what I'm more interested in to ask you next. I, these pauses concern me. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hit you too hard. Don't worry about it. 
How about this? Let's just get into it. I, I, I'm, I'm tired of beating around the bush. So, uh, in, in 2016, yeah, that's right, you uh, made a decision to uh, challenge a, a Democratic incumbent, Tom Gordon, for the county executive seat. When you did that, what did you what were what did you think your accomplishments could be? What was Tom Gordon doing that required a challenge, a primary challenge? And what did you think you were going to do better specifically to to uh, to sort of put us on a better path in the county? When I taught at Prestige Academy, I had an informal tutoring club. Kids would students sixth and seventh grade math students of mine would hang out after school sometimes required by their teacher mr meyer and sometimes not required they'd they'd hang out and there was one student michael who would be there almost every day uh and even when he was in eighth grade he wasn't even a student of mine and he would come to tutoring and i remember doing a word problem with him and it was about a kid playing outside and i was questioning him about uh you know, why don't you get this done and I'll call your mom and you get out of here quick uh, and you go play outside. And he was telling me how he wasn't allowed to play outside. And he then went into, this is a student, a kid, just like me, he's a really smart kid who's actually in college now, who, who goes into this story. And nearly all of my students had these stories that were mind boggling. And I'm here trying to teach kids. I'd spent time in Iraq. I'd spent time in Kenya. I came back home to Delaware and I thought there's gotta be a better way. There's got to be some leadership that can address some of the root causes of the problems that they face. So that's really what initially was the impetus for me to get into office. Now I'm in office. There are a number of other problems we're tackling. There's a huge problem in this country right now. We have major climate change going on globally. There are nations that are taking it very, very seriously. Our national government's not taking it seriously right now. They're doing less and less to make sure that the water we drink is clean, to make sure that the air we breathe is safe, to make sure the land on which we live is not polluted. And I really believe it's incumbent on us as local leaders and, and either elected or non-elected advocates to stand up and say, we need to do things differently here because this is, we are just tenants here on this earth. And we got to make sure that the next generation has land, air, and water that is safe for them. Um, I mean, when I, um, at the beginning of your answer, when you had the, uh, the student in, um, yeah, I mean, we talk about issues like that in people's stories all the time. And we try to tie those, as you said, uh, <laughs> to uh, root causes or, yeah. or, or systemic sort of issues. And we try to address them. That's, that's how we illustrate sort of what the systemic issues. But we have to name what they are. What the so, problems are. Yeah, so when you were talking to that think, kid who wanted to play outside but couldn't play outside and you started having a sort of this idea that, yeah, there are some fundamental things I'll that we're not addressing, we're not, we're not guns, foregrounding. Guns in neighborhoods. Okay. Right? Yeah. I think the... the um, I would call it illiteracy, both adult illiteracy and child illiteracy. Then the number of words they've done studies on the number of words that five-year-olds know. You're not going to give me a Joe Biden. You're not going to give me a Joe Biden thing with the words and the record player and all that and hearing all that. Right? What's a record player? I see that. I have one downstairs. <laughs> um, no, but no, but the, the, the number of words we should be. It's a fair point. We there's, should there's be a... if we're serious about violence. 
we should be really looking at those neighborhoods most influenced by violence and dramatically transforming childhood experience from the age of zero to three, from the womb to to three. There are programs out there doing it, like Nurse Family Partnership, Children's Family First here in Delaware. If you look up Nurse Family Partnership, if you look up the research on it, it's the most compelling anti-crime program in the history of this country. The data on it is is uncontroversial, successful, incredible investment. Nurse Family Partnership is underfunded all across this country. So we got to make sure the zero to three experience is different. We got to make sure that there's true educational equity in this country so that kids going to school in Hokesson are having same or similar experience to kids who go to school in Wilmington. Until we're serious about that, I think we're going to continue getting, if not same outcomes, the similar outcomes is what we're getting. So if we're going to get serious about that, because it keeps coming, I feel like maybe I'm, maybe I'm harping on it or maybe I'm wrong. Every topic we talk about, whether even the reassessment, where are you going to get to $25 million? Where, where is the, the nurses' partnership going to get their funding? Where is this going? So, so, where, so where's the money come from? What do we do? So, uh, at the count, understand our county uh, government, uh, as Councilwoman Diller in Newark likes to say, our job is pretty much public safety and dirt. It's public safety and dirt. We have some libraries in there, but it's pretty much land use outside of the city of Wilmington. We do paramedics, we do 911, police. We help, but we're the leading funder of the fire service outside the city of Wilmington, libraries, parks. So what we're doing in the county is trying to use those tools as much as we can to influence early childhood experience, particularly in poorer areas. We're trying to make sure that young adults have access to technology so that they're not just using their phones all the time, but they're actually having this, they learn the skills to program them. Uh, And we're doing all sorts of stuff, as I mentioned, with affordable housing, with the resources that we're given. but in terms of those larger issues that I see, pretty much as mostly as a former teacher, um, the resources are, are much larger than the county government has with a few hundred million dollars in its budget. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, my response to that generally is the whole concept of having of whatever your responsibility is, and, and maybe the county government responsibility is narrow, um, and that's fair. But it's not resources that we're given. We have to convince people that housing people is a good idea, that giving people medical treatment or addiction treatment is a good idea, that having good schools is actually a good idea. That's very difficult here because most of the elites send their kids to private schools. So until we convince the people that that we need those things to hold the neighborhoods and society together, then we can say... Rather than them, we can say you have to pay for this. This is why it's important, and you have. It's not because it's very passive to say, you know, we have these uh, things we need to manage, and we have this amount of money given to us. That's just a, you know what I mean. I understand. That, but rather than saying, because um, it's it's just it struck me um, that in in one hand, you know, and I think you said it beautifully, you know, and and and. This, this child, you know, really doesn't have an opportunity. Maybe they come from a violent neighborhood or maybe they don't have a home or their parents or the child is not getting the medical care they need. Uh, I, I want to do something about it. And then 
in the next answer, it's like, no, well, I'm the county executive. I can't do too much about uh, it. No, well, that's not Or accurate. I'm using the tools. I, you're that, using I'm the, using the tools that are given tools, to me. Limited, limited, limited tools. tools. Right. That's fair. Uh, but but so, <clears throat> do you think that there's a need for, at every level, whether it be the mayor, um, you at the county, uh, the state, the federal, whatever, do you think that there's a need for, rather than what I would call good administration, there's a need for political leadership. Do you I, know what I, I mean? Need, I think you need both. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, no. obviously I, you I, wouldn't I need hear both. what you're saying. You wanna, I agree with you. You don't want an inspirational person who can't read or whatever. You know, right, right. I, I, no, 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 I get no. that. I, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. No, I, I think when you're, you know, it's 2020. We're going to the polls a few, I think three, if you're going to, at least three times, if you're in certain school district, four or more times this year. Um, listen, not just to the solutions your your candidates propose, but also how they define the problems. What what are what are the problems they see themselves as as solving? Uh, because I think you know candidates look at our society in very different ways and see their role and. And the kind of political leadership they need to provide in very different ways. We need seriously bold leadership on guns. I think it's crazy that we live in a society where there are people who are demanding a right to go out and shoot quail, shoot deer. And there are people demanding that 13-year-olds don't shoot each other in their neighborhoods. And somehow we can't reconcile those two things we can as a society figure it out and i think like you're referring to maybe we're not figuring it out because people don't really want to or they're not expressing they're not being told hey let's just do this guns is a tough one for me because and i don't know if you've heard my you know, yeah, it's kind of complicated uh -huh. thing where i the thing the thing about i look at those as two different issues actually i i certainly think assault weapons uh should should be banned Semi-automatic assault weapons are just weapons of war. They're just killing machines. There's no reason to have one. You can't have one. Um, if you want to shoot a deer or a quail or you want to shoot skeet or you want to... That's all cool. Do that. But we have, So we have to convince those sportsmen folks or people who want to have something for protection that we're not looking to change that part of it. That's fine. The idea of 9mm handguns being passed around a group of 15-year-olds on the east side or in Riverside or maybe in this neighborhood, for all I know, um, is a different issue than that. That's actually what you were talking about before and getting and, and trying to, rather than sequester people in terrible neighborhoods and over-police them, actually going in and be like, hey, you're our neighbors too. You should have good schools. You should have more services. There should be supermarkets and, and, and doctor's offices here and everything. We don't do that. But that's really – see, I look at it like two separate things. I actually move those things apart, and people just talk about guns and put them together. That's the only, that's a, th th this is the toughest one in this state because we have we, – you know, so for something that's so tiny, we go from some of the most rural areas to some of the most urban areas, you know, back and forth. I guess New York's like that, but it's so big. Yeah. Um, so we're always bumping into each other. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I look at that particular issue. But again, people need to articulate this stuff. Like, it's articulated during an election cycle because people talk about guns or whatever topic, and they give you their sort of opinion on the topic. 
And then after the election cycle, it's more of like, well, you know, we're just going to run the run the run the engine here, run the run the thing, and we'll talk about it the next election cycle. Yeah, yeah, and nothing. Changes. We people need to articulate what they stand for and what they would like to do materially, all the time. That's what leaders do. And it's and it's and it's it's disappointing because well I mean I don't to be perfectly honest there are people that I expect it from and people that I don't mm -hmm. I think I've made that very clear um, some people I don't I my my I expect very little from them I just assume my assumption is I don't I don't deal with them we'll just we'll try to defeat them politically and forget who they were there are other people who I think kind of get it and with a little bit of encouragement. Might take up the mantle and do it. Right. I mean, I don't know if you can think of any kind of people like that. I know a few. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I know a few, but uh, sometimes I'm not sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Sure. I, there's also a lot that uh, um, there are... Uh, Obamacare is a great example. Uh, Obama, I think, I think, in 2008, when, when Senator Obama was the candidate for president, I bet you if you would have put something in front of him that looked like Obamacare, which then was called Romney Care, right? It was Mitt Romney's health care program in Massachusetts. Yep. I think Senator Obama would have said, no, we don't want that. He, he came in wanting something much more ambitious, but it got to the point with the Congress he was dealing with, Romney Care was the best he could get. So he got it and it was Obamacare. And it was, I think, a step forward for the country was it everything we needed or wanted no it sort of made everyone buy private insurance it was the biggest boon for private insurance but it in terms of uh eliminating pre-existing conditions in terms of um edu in terms of providing health care to millions who previously did not have health care it was ambitious and it was much better than what we had before so there's an interesting uh dynamic where you can say uh, wait a minute, Obama didn't go far enough. Or you can say, given the hand he was dealt and the political realities he was looking at, he got as far as we could have gotten in that time. Perhaps. My concern is what happened afterwards. Because what happened afterwards was just a bunch of defense and saying, well, because it was the best deal we could negotiate at the time, like that's done. And now we're just on defense for the next six years, making sure, um, you know, it gets through these uh, Supreme Court cases. And they, now it's going to now little bits are going to get peeled away and peeled away and peeled away because no one stood up and said, you know what, this is what we got to do. I, I don't disagree with you that it was um, it was it was certainly an improvement. I, you know, nobody I don't think anybody can really any reasonable person can say that it wasn't. But there's a there's a, there's something happening in there that I think is very telling, and it's it it's that's it is to continue to make the argument and continue anything again like as you said it was a giveaway to insurance companies yeah. and just kept the system in place. It said this system is good, but we'll try to pump some money into it to to like make make it available to more people. But the system's not good, and people need to just say that. And, and that goes back to what I was saying before. You, you used the example of the healthcare system, but I could say it about any number of structural things. Yeah. Like, 
yes, there's a political reality, and I think people understand that. But that does that doesn't mean we have to succumb to it every day. Right. We can go out there and say, yeah, I'm going to do this because this is the best I can do. But this is garbage. That's fair. That's in good faith. But that's not what happens. You get a third of what you want. Everybody celebrates. We have we we have. Uh, in my position, had the power and done certain bold things to buck up against the system. For example, when it came to my attention that our police officers who do a great job out there every night, I I really believe certainly one of the finest, if not the finest police agencies in the state, in the region, in the country, doing extraordinary work. I believe you. They, they, uh, no, I really mean that. No, I know you do. And and again, I, I... I, my my position on the police is very complicated. Right. Um, like we can't. I'm not a like ant. Like we need peacekeeping. We need people to like Be safe. Safe. Yeah. yeah. I I think the way that it's done actually is borderline absurd. But certainly there are people out there needing to do the jobs that they're doing. Sure. That's that goes without. So. Saying. We have a problem in this country that federal immigration officials want ever, and made it clear through the president that they pretty much want every law enforcement officer across our country to be agents in, uh, of our immigration system. And uh, given what our immigration system is now, given that to build a strong economy and a healthy community, we need to include immigrants and make them feel like they're part of our community. We signed an executive order a few months into my being in office, safe and inclusive communities that says, hey, our police aren't going to go and just start asking people for their papers, things like that. And that was a, a specific, I think, uh, political imperative that we felt that in this time, we're, who are we as Americans? Who are we as Delawareans? And how do we stand up and both say something politically and send a clear message to residents in our community, residents who are immigrants and residents who are not immigrants about the kind of community we want to live in? Yeah, no, I think that... There are certain things um, that sort of forced everybody's hand uh, in this day and age when we have sort of maybe the most reactionary, fascistic sort of national government maybe we've ever had. And people have stood up for things like that. And I'm glad. Immigrants, uh, women's rights, a lot of things like that that are under threat. A lot of people have a lot of solidarity and are staying together. That's great. Um I guess I'm more talking about the the economic stuff. But you were going to say something about the police, and I interrupted you. That you were going to make a point about because uh, that's interesting too. Because I I do have a little bit of um, criticism there because I, you know, we had the fire the um, the president of the firefighters union in, and we're generally union people. But I feel like I feel like they misused the they they misused the rat. And as somebody from Philadelphia, like my family's from Philadelphia, I'm from Wilmington. Like putting the rat out. Of blatant misuse, like that's for scat. What's a good use? A good use is if a if a construction site is is there and you're building some sort of building, uh, apartment building, or you're building a like the Insight uh, building that they built out here, you know, where they you know whatever you're building, big construction site, and they hire non-union labor, and the union goes and puts the rat out there because it's a bunch of scabs building the building. That's where the rat. That's a rat. Somebody who crosses a picket line is a rat. I don't see anybody doing that. 
I see I, I see them sort of playing political games with the rat with the, like this 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 idea of labor and labor unions at least on the East Coast, and um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's unnecessary. I don't like it. You can comment. Yeah, I mean, it's your opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a great police force. Uh, we have a great police force. My obligation. Listen, the, the unions like the Fraternal Order of Police in Newcastle County, they have an obligation to their members to try to get the best possible deal they can get for their members. Members pay dues so that they, they the president and leadership of the Fraternal Order of Police serves them and tries to get the best deal that they can so that their members are safe at work, so that they have great health care, so that they have great benefits and great salaries. My job in many ways is consistent with, with a lot of that. We want our police officers and our public employees to be well compensated, but I also have to protect the taxpayer, make sure that taxpayers are getting a good deal too. So sometimes those come into conflict and people react how they, how they want to. I love that answer because it shows that however much a law degree at the University of Michigan costs, it was worth it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm just, just, just busting your no, balls. No, I'm serious. I mean, uh, if so, you, you no, but I mean, one thing that like doesn't make the newspaper in the news, and I encourage people. I've I've had a chance to go on uh, many ride-alongs with our county police, including in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods at some of the most dangerous times uh, of the night, uh, and the work that they're doing, um, like the Wilmington police, like the state police, is really I- extraordinary. It's also true of our 911 operators. You don't hear anything about 911 operators. We had a walkout on Saturday night. Walkouts, last day of work. Last shift, a guy named Bob Kerr walks out after 45 years. This guy was Google Maps for Newcastle County before Google existed. It was his Bob job. Kerr. Bob Kerr. Bob Kerr, shout out. 45 years um, sending people to, uh, to bad situations. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Well, not bad. Answer, well, sometimes answer, it's delivering babies. Sometimes yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Or uh, uh, some sort of emergent. Sometimes the cat's in the tree. Like some emergent thing. Well, it's the cat's in the tree. I mean, yeah, we got to get the cat. Cool cat. It could save, right. Yeah. It save Meow Meow's life. You never know. But uh, 45 years uh, of doing that. And it's just you, you, you stand and talk to some of these guys. It's really inspiring the service that they've provided the community. A guy like that, maybe you talked to him the last time you called 911 in your most urgent situation. You never met him, uh, and he's he's out there saving lives. Nobody ever gives him a pat on the back. So so last, last quick topic, because I feel like I don't understand as much of it as I should, uh, and I feel like I, I'm going to compliment you on this, but I'm not positive. So when did they cook up this scheme, this uh, – this, uh, the um, – Stock exchange, the Wilmington Stock Exchange scheme. When when was that cooked up? Now and and that's the first question. The second question is: It seems like they had some sort of change in like ownership on paper, and they wanted to change the collateral to the loan, and all this stuff was. And, and you just kind of like put an end to it. But give me your your take on this. When, first of all, when did they set this up, and what has happened subsequently for you to make a decision that? Um, you're not going to agree to the new terms of the of the collateral. I think in 2020, there are way too many government giveaways with your taxpayer money to large corporations. Way too many. It's crazy that wealthy individuals are coming to county, city, state, federal government with their hands out. In 2015, I was not in office. I ran in 2016. In 2015, before I came into office, um, my predecessor uh, wrote a $3 million check to a few well-connected business people to start a stock exchange. 
he wrote the check as a loan. Now, keep in mind that it's very clear to me every single day, I am not allowed under county code to write a check for more than $50,000 without county council approval. I need to get seven county council votes out of 13 to write any check. And if you go to any of our county council meeting every other Tuesday night, you'll see there are a number of things there, often routine stuff where we receive a grant from someone for $150,000. We need to spend it and it needs to go through county council. Somehow this $3 million check was signed by the prior county executive to a few well-connected businessmen. The transaction, county council at the time knew about it. It was in the newspaper. County council at the time was so upset about it, they hired an independent law firm to do a legal analysis. Uh, you can look at it online. They called the transaction unlawful. I come into office in 2017. Uh, oh, by the way, this, this group said they were going to start a stock exchange, a world-class stock exchange called Delaware Board of Trade. It was going inc to include hiring highest quality jobs, over 100 people, 100 Delawareans in Wilmington. The prior county executive said it was going to save the city of Wilmington. I visited this office uh, in downtown Wilmington in 2017, about a year and a half, almost two years into the, into the five-year loan. There was at most two, three jobs that had been created, uh, and I demanded at the time for them to pay us our money back. And since then, every few months, I've been saying, pay us our money back. They have to pay interest every year. They have been paying us interest every year. The loan is due at the end of this year. The collateral we have for the loan is software, software that some analysts tell me is worth something and some tell me it's worthless. Uh, the company, those initial investors, organizers who put this deal together, who got the $3 million, sold their shares to a company called Ideanomics. Uh, where the vice chairman is uh, McMahon, who's the the son of Linda McMahon, who's the who's an aide to Donald Trump, WWE guy, WWE guy, exactly. So, so this company now owns the Delaware Board of Trade. The shareholders of Delaware Board of Trade have now gotten out. They're no longer shareholders of the Delaware Board of Trade. We're still left with the three million dollar loan. All I say over and over again is give the taxpayers their three million dollars back. Yeah, I mean, any I'm I'm always going to be behind any kind of watchdog on, you know, everybody connected gets these giveaways. This is rampant and, in the state, and, and, and I don't like it. They're coming after me. You're going to see in the news the next week. They're suing me personally. They're trying to do anything they can to change the narrative because they haven't paid the taxpayers back. So, last big question: How many doors have you knocked for Jess Green? <laughs> that many i got my own election to worry about so i'm up this year i i, I there there uh there are a lot of it, first of all it takes a lot of courage to run uh i have a lot of admiration for everyone out there running i know firsthand how hard it is to run against an incumbent um i also so you yeah you did run as i mentioned before you ran against a democratic incumbent yeah three-term incumbent yeah it's very it's a very interesting and it's hard. Uh, it's yeah interesting. it's hard uh and it takes a lot of work so Hats off to, to all the, the numerous um, Democrats who are out there running against incumbents in, in primaries. I'm, I'm focused on making sure I get reelected. Number one, making sure we're running the county really well for county taxpayers every single day. And number two, getting our 
re-election bid kicked off. I also have a concern about this country. I, as you said, I think the direction we're going in nationally is really, really dangerous. Really, really dangerous. Um, not just it, it, we talk about a domestic policy a lot. You know, we spoke about. I was a, a diplomat in Iraq. I spent time in Kenya. You, you get a glimpse of how people in those areas of the world see us, and that's really, really bad too. Uh, so I think wh- whoever the Democratic candidate is, and I know, I know you and a lot of people listening have very strong feelings about who it should be. But whoever it is, I, I haven't really thought about it that much. You haven't thought about. It. <laughs> I, I really hope that, that, that we have a different president come this time next year. Yeah, I mean, and again, I think now's the time. My my position on it is that not only do we need to address what's in front of us, we need to address the conditions that created the circumstances we're looking at in front of us. And I think, you know, it's pretty clear, and we talked about some of this stuff. You know, there, you can say... You can make criticisms of this issue or that issue or how it should be run, um, but there is a there's a long, 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 long line of decisions that were made before that, and ideas people had before that, or people who didn't step up and say we're not doing this before that uh, because of money or whatever because they were getting handouts like you were talking about, and so not only do we need to dr- to address what's right in front of us, which we absolutely do. We need to address the conditions that put us in this predicament. That's why I feel the way I feel about it. But I won't put you on the spot anymore, even though you did run against a, an incumbent. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, you know, people get their feelings hurt around here a lot. I hurt a lot of people's feelings. I don't think I hurt your feelings. In here? Yeah. My feelings aren't hurt. You should hear what they say to me outside the bunker. This is nothing. Uh, that's true. That is true. They probably just yell at you in the street. I treat you, you know, I treat everybody in here nicely. We got Matt did not have a beer. He, he probably won't smoke a joint with me afterwards. But <laughs> I mean, I, I no, not probably. I will not smoke a joint with you afterwards. Uh, you know what? I would f- first of all, if you did, I wouldn't tell anybody. www.patreon.com/slash <laughs> uh, the Highlands Bunker. It's Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Uh, we're gonna have a lot of uh, interesting stuff to uh, report to you soon about some expansion we're doing um, with our media project. We've had a few meetings about it. And so, um, you know, now might be a good time to jump on the Highlands Bunker train with a little patronage because we have a little deal for people who are patrons. They're going to get some they're going to get some free stuff before other people get it. Consider this. Matt, thanks for coming in. Thank you. One last thought. When you brush your teeth tonight, water goes down the drain. Just say a small thank you to your public works uh, uh, staff. At Newcastle County, they're working hard every day to make sure it goes to a clean, safe place and doesn't affect our waterways. Nice. There you go. Thank you very much. Uh, Left is best. 